The resilient scientist Lucy Hone went through the devastating agony of losing her beloved 14-year-old daughter and her friends in a car accident. It accelerated an embodied understanding of what makes people resilient. What are the three secrets to resilient people? Let's find out. Hello, folks. Today we're joined by Dr. Lucy Hone, uh, who is an adjunct senior fellow at New Zealand's University of Canterbury and author of Resilient Grieving, Finding Strength and Embracing Life After Loss That Changes Everything. And she also gave a TED Talk, Three Secrets of Resilient People, which was one of the top 20 TED Talks of 2020. Um, Lucy, welcome to The Evolving Leader. Oh, thanks so much for having me, and I'm delighted to be with you all today. How are you feeling today? Good. We've had a long weekend here, so um, it's a short week, and it already feels like it should be Friday, but that's all good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was the Queen's Jubilee, Silver Jubilee, this uh, this weekend, so that, that'll just stack, place a stamp in everybody's minds about what we've been going through. So can we start with your story and how um, you know we're, we're talking together, the the journey that you've on, which was obviously uh, a, a traumatic one, but has led you to discover new things about yourself and, and uh, the ideas of resilience. Yes, so I, I first became fascinated by resilience. Who's got it? Can we build it? What gets in the way of, you know, what are the barriers and enablers to resilience? back in the global financial crisis, back in 2008, actually, is when I first explicitly started to research resilience. And that led me to, I wanted to do more training. And so I discovered there were only two places in the world that you could do your master's degree in resilience at the time. And one was the University of East London, and the other was the University of Pennsylvania. And while I am a Londoner, born and bred, by then I was living in the South Island of New Zealand. So UPenn in Philadelphia was a bit closer than UEL. So I ended up going there and it was an amazing executive master's degree with all of the really the, the best scientists in the field on um, psychological well-being and resilience. And while I was there, they had just picked up the contract to train all American soldiers to be as mentally fit as they've traditionally been physically fit. And they were already running the Penn Resilience Program, which they've since run in UK schools, Australian schools and American schools. And so for me, I'm a pracademic. I'm a what we call, you know, a pracademic, a practicing academic. What I really care about is getting the best of science out of the ivory towers of academia so it's actually helpful to people in their everyday lives. So it was an amazing place to study. And I just finished that study and had come back to Christchurch, New Zealand, my adopted hometown, when it was hit by a massive earthquake in February 2011. What, what, actually, the first earthquake was in 2010, and like good Londoners, we didn't know what had hit us in the middle of the night. And then we had this really massive one in February that was devastating, killing. It killed 195 people and it literally wiped out 90% of our city. So we couldn't even go into town for 18 months. It was all cordoned off. The army were there. Um, you wouldn't have recognised it. I mean, it really 
did look like a war zone. And I thought that that was kind of my calling to put all this good research to good use because I did work with all sorts of organizations in that post-quake period to help our own community get back on their feet. But sadly, I was wrong because in 2014, um, on the Queen's birthday weekend, in fact, we were um, going to, it's a long weekend here in New Zealand, and we were off to go and do some mountain biking down south in the beautiful um, Southern Alps. And at the last minute on a Saturday lunchtime, our wee girl, Abby, who was 12 at the time, decided to hop in the car with her best friend, Ella, who was also 12, and Ella's mum, Sally, who was a really great friend of mine and also English. And on the way down, a car sped straight through a stop sign and at 100 kilometres an hour crashed into them and killed all three of them. So uh, in reality, you know, I find myself in this peculiar, unique position in that I, I've been trained by, you know, really the best of the best, because um, <laughs> they were. And then I've had to live through, you don't just get one earthquake, I now know. We actually had 10,000 aftershocks and that whole quake period of our lives of experiencing anxiety and never knowing whether you were going to get through the night without another harrowing earthquake. You know, that went on for a couple of years. But that made me do all this work with other people and then losing Abby has just made me turn it all inward and work out, yeah, how useful this science um, really is. So I can say I'm really lucky that I studied it because the health professional's reaction to her loss made me realise how little health professionals knew about resilience and how little this science is... It, it, the pandemic has helped get people, you know, un, to understand that the ways we choose to think and the way we choose to act have a huge impact on our life. That understanding is definitely greater than ever. But when Abby died eight years ago, no one understood that. They wrote us off and it was pretty um, miserable outlook really so yeah it's been quite a journey that that is a journey and uh, i think few people um outside of um your neck of the woods would probably understand because we we heard obviously about the the, the earthquakes but the uh, the aftershocks um and that continuous experience of being in a survival state I guess for for a protracted period of time is probably not something that most of us are aware of so if, if we're looking at the, the the fact that the Kubler-Ross model which is ingrained in people's minds around not just only um, grief but also just loss generally around jobs mm -hmm. and you know any any aspect to where they're, where they're separated from something that they that cares to them what what replaces that in your mind such a good question. Um, so firstly, I think it is really important for people to understand that um, grief really is as individual as your fingerprint. So firstly, to understand that there is no right or wrong way to grieve. Um, and the other thing that I'm really keen for people to understand is that it's okay to want to be an active participant in your grief process. So you don't need to hang around and wait 
for any of those sort of emotions to come to you or pass. There's lots that you can actually do rather than just letting grief wash over you. That's not to say that we want to ignore or avoid um, all emotions. You know, they're all part of being resilient. So a couple of the models I really like and have been useful for me. One is something called continuing bonds theory, which means that grief is about um, learning to love in separation. So you can still love that person, even though they are no longer physically here. And in our, so we run this program called Coping with Loss, which is online training and a support group. And in that people find it really useful, quite a breakthrough understanding actually that even though that person isn't here, they can still love them. That doesn't make them weird or mad, that actually they have to forge this kind of ongoing connection with their dead, even though they're not here any longer. So it's not morbid, it's not freaky, it's just the reality that you can think about how they changed you and what they taught you, and then you can create little rituals of ways of keeping them present in your life. You know, you might wear jewellery or you might um, have some just photos of things of them around you. But also, I mean, I always gather foliage when I'm out walking, um, walking the dogs because Sally always did that. So it's just kind of my kind of connection to her. And so these are rituals and practices that are not, they're very individual. And what the literature shows is that very often people who manage to forge some kind of continuing bond with their loved ones seem to adapt healthily to that loss. So, you know, far from being um, a kind of crazy delusional act, it's actually really healthy. And the other more contemporary modern grief theory that I have found really useful is something called oscillation theory, which essentially just means that it's healthy to oscillate between approaching your grief head on, actually, you know, really feeling it, wallowing in it, um, all of that kind of agony and pain as much as you can, and then withdrawing and going, that's enough for today, or I can't cope with any more right now. So I might go and rest, avoid it, you know, um, retreat in another form to, to really engage in something maybe that will occupy my brain so I can have a rest. And there's, again, nothing dysfunctional about that. It's actually really good for the bereaved to approach their loss, um, think about it, deal with it, whether that's the emotions or whether that is dealing with the reality of their loved one's absence, you know, the things they have to come to terms with and learn to do without that person here. But you don't have to beat yourself up and do it all the time. And so I think those are just two examples of much more useful grief theory. I, I find the uh, the oscillating thing fascinating. If you think about the, the kind of ancient rituals of the wake and the Shiva, mm. they are all trying to kind of move you between celebrating and, and crying and to sort of stop you from getting stuck. I guess, mm. which that seems a kind of intuitive idea. Yeah, I think oscillations are kind of an interesting theory for life, really, you know, that sometimes you can approach your problems and you can dive headlong in, 
and there are other times where a bit of avoidance is okay, you know? So um, we just have to work it out as we go and find what works for us. But the real key is being an active participant in personalizing and discovering what works for you by doing that deliberate, intentional activity of thinking, I'll try this. How does that work? Do I like that? Do I hate it? Um, And so we talk a lot in our work about people being their own self-experiment because for all the science in the world, and, you know, we're always delivering the best of scientific findings, but they're always about um, research that's been derived from, you know, multiple studies and tell you what is best for most people. At the end of the day, you still got to work out what's best for you and what language works for you. Can we turn to resilience now and um, your talk that you gave, um, the, the TEDx talk? Can you can you run us through some of the the, the highlights of those those ideas? Hmm. It's funny for you to ask me to talk about the highlights because I actually really loathe public speaking. So the whole thing for me was um, (laughs) a terrible moment in life, Um, um, made only partly better by the fact that my gorgeous niece was talking about her Down syndrome brother in in TEDx youth at the same time. So we went through that kind of agony together. Um, So... Uh, yeah, I mean, wow, what a whirlwind. So I did it in 2019. And as I say, I'm, I'm a reluctant um, public speaker. I have learned to public speak. And actually, I mean, your podcast is about leadership. And I, um, I the earthquakes forced me to get up on the stage and start sharing my work verbally because I've always been a journalist, a writer, a researcher. And so I've always communicated through my fingertips. But um, I had, during the during the aftermath of the earthquakes, it was pretty obvious that I needed to get out there and start sharing what I knew with my community. So that was my training ground. And then the only reason I said yes to the TED Talk was that it was in 2019 and it was the opening of the town hall that had been rebuilt. So it had taken it eight years to be rebuilt and that TED event was its reopening. And I thought, oh, it would be pretty cool to be part of that. You know, I I believe in the resilience of this city. We've lived and breathed it together. So so I said, yes. Um, And, and, you know, never expected it to become a really big thing. And, of course, then when COVID hit in 2020, it was picked up by the TED platform. And and now across platforms, it's got 9 million views. So that is quite mad. And I think what resonates with people is the the realness, I think, of it. The fact that I have this unique story, but the strategies are pretty, they're they're backed by science. But as a pracademic, that's my job is to find ways to communicate the science in ways that people can actually understand work out how to do for themselves and actually put into practice so the um they honestly they sound so simple when i talk about the three these three ways of thinking that we see resilient people do so the first is that they get that shit happens you know they truly understand to their core that suffering and struggle is part of life 
Um, and this is important because when things go wrong, it stops you from beating yourself up and really um, feeling discriminated against. So it stops that why me. So, and when I, I we trained 30,000 people last year, so we're always training people. And, and, and often the comeback is, oh yeah, but, but we know that. Everyone knows that, right? But not right, because actually we live in an era of perfectionism and all those makeover shows and, you know, filters on our selfies on Instagram. Everywhere you look, people are trying to pretend that life is sort of more seamless and better and less wrinkled than it really is. And the problem with perfectionism is that it is strongly associated with depression, anxiety, procrastination, um, all sorts of nasty things, really. Um, so shame, um, helplessness. So, And you don't perform well when you're in those frames of mind. So really the first step is just to say to people, shit happens, and when shit happens, try and understand that it happens to everyone. So that kind of connects you to humanity. And to tune in to... Um, what you need to do to sh to be a bit kind to yourself in that moment, you know. So, so that's a bit of around self compassion. It kind of leans into that research, and then the second strategy is that what we see is that resilient people are really selective over where they focus their attention. So, firstly, they've kind of got this idea of metacognition that they are look they are overseeing the way they think and act, and they're noticing. So they've got this high level of self-awareness. But typically, what we see resilient people do is they focus their attention on the things that they can change and somehow accept the stuff they can't. You know, it's so easy for me to say it. It's not so easy to do it. But it was a game changer for me, you know, understanding that I had limited attention and that where I focused that attention would make up my world effectively stopped me from getting sucked into the what I've lost, what I don't have and all of that. So I used to have this voice in my head that said, don't lose what you have to what you have lost. And we have beautiful sons that we were determined to live for, are determined to live for, um, and a great community. We had so much, you know, we're really fortunate. We have so much going for us. So it just makes you not get sucked into what psychologists call that negativity bias. It's not diminishing the fact that, you know, this is truly shit moment <laughs> and awful things happen, but it is making you think, well, even while this is going on, um, what is still good in my world? I used to keep three little river stones in my pocket um, and a very Kiwi thing to do to have three little river stones in your pocket. Um, and I'd bump into them during the day when I put my hand in my pocket and think, make myself think what's good, you know, try and focus on what's good. So, and then the, the third is this kind of oversee overarching question that seems to help us notice where we focus our attention and that is to ask yourself is what I'm doing the way I'm thinking or the way I'm acting helping 
helping or harming me in my quest to get through this. So whether this for me at the time was surviving Abby's loss, but in the pandemic, I've, I've come back to this question again and again, you know, is trawling through the media or just having media notifications on my phone, helping or harming me in my quest to try and maintain my sanity at a time where it feels like the world is really slipping away. Um, late night bedtime procrastination, you know, the, the fifth Netflix show, Lucy, is that helping or harming you in your quest to be on form when you're presenting tomorrow? Um, and so seriously, whether it is watching the news, trawling through social media, having that fourth or fifth glass of wine, um, maintaining a friendship where someone's kind of knocked you, but actually managing to overlook that, it's just the most useful question. And I think the real power of it is that it puts you in the driver's seat. It makes, it, it is adaptable and it makes you hone in on what is important for you. So my husband and I can ask each other the same question and come up with completely different answers. So it is very adaptable and backed by great science. Let, let's just dig into this for a little bit. Um, so the three stages one is feels like a almost a, a stoicism of acceptance um the second is a, a this metacognitive way of surveilling your own reactions to things um and the third is then an alignment between a kind of longer term outcome that you're looking for and asking yourself in the moment is this helping or harming me um, where does the emotional, because th these are all kind of mm. thought processes mm. Mm. Um, that you were talking about and uh, raising a very high level of awareness, where does the thought, where does the, the kind of meta-emotional part of this play into it? Because um, I know from my own experience of losing my mother and father quite recently that a lot of what you're talking about played out in my mind, particularly when I was going to the hospital and, you know, not maybe not looking after myself from a nutritional point of view um, and just giving in to eating all the wrong stuff for a, f a few months. Um, where, where does the emotional part play into this? So, um, yes, well done for bringing that up because it is so essential. And um, I think firstly, the emotional part actually sits, it sits throughout, but that first one about knowing that suffering is part of life is actually, yes, it can be interpreted as very similar to stoicism, but actually it's not because it's more about self-compassion. So it's not about hardening up. Mm. It's actually about, I'm going to do, um, yeah, I'm going to do what it takes for me to get through this moment because I'm really struggling right now. And so for me, the losing a child brings such vulnerability to your life that of course it brings anxiety and that sense of kind of just overwhelming terror and fear that the same thing might happen again. Because as we know, you know, the fact that I've lost one child doesn't mean that I'm, I'm less likely to lose another because statistics don't work like that, sadly. Um, and so it's about giving yourself a break. And we talk about walking through emotions, so not trying to avoid them bravely letting yourself feel them 
The most incredible thing about emotions is that they don't last nearly as long as we think they're going to. And so I think there's a, a real problem with fear of negative emotions nowadays. And in all of our work, we're saying to people, actually show yourself some self-compassion because everybody struggles and suffers and it's okay to say to somebody else at work, in your family, I'm really struggling right now. I actually really need a hand. Um, and I have probably uh, four or five times in the last few years found myself about to present or just been in a, like a whole day, multiple day workshop and said to some of my colleagues, I'm really struggling here. I just am not really able to keep standing up there on that stage. Can you do this bit for me? And so I think it is that being, and this is so important for leadership, isn't it? To be able to show vulnerability and to say, yeah, I'm not feeling this right now. To be brave enough to ask someone to step in for you and where we can all build resilience is by knowing each other so well that there is no shame or awkwardness or embarrassment when you ask someone to come to your aid and that they can see it in you. You know, my colleagues will know when I need help and you don't foster your resilience, you know, at 3am, you do it day in, day out by building relationships. So, yeah, emotions are um, are tough and particularly in grief, we, we talk about the grief ambush. You can really be ambushed by grief, can't you? It can come out of nowhere. And I think the the best way through that is to be kind to yourself and go, this, this is grief, you know, this just makes me normal and human. And it won't last forever, these negative emotions, but I really shouldn't be scared or ashamed of them. Um, Sally, my dear friend who died with Ella and Abby, would, I know she would just tell me to get bigger sunglasses and put them on and carry on. Um, so, you know, yeah. We, we take a pretty human approach to it all, I think. What um, in the last two years have we learnt about resilience through the pandemic? Um, not much <laughs> would be my um, short answer to that. We've learned that we need it, definitely. I think in many ways the pandemic has helped. My, my job is promoting population level resilience that's what i do you know so we run conferences run courses um write books anything to get those messages out there at that mass market level and i think the message has there's been a real shift in that people get why they need resilience now they don't get what they have to do so they get the why but not the how and you know i I liken that to going along to school and being told that you need to learn to read and write and do maths, but we're not going to teach you that here. And I think there's a lot of that going on in our businesses nowadays. I get asked all the time to speak and what every employer wants is their staff to be more resilient, but they don't want to give them less work or higher levels of psychological safety or more 
a greater sense of belonging um, that come hand in hand with those things. So I think there is a real disconnect and, and, and we see people falling into thinking traps all the time with their resilience that they think that you can just buy a gratitude journal or download the mindfulness apps and, and they should be there. And why is it not working for them? So I definitely think there is a level of resilience fatigue where people are frustrated that they have this yearning desire to be resilient, but they haven't yet worked out what works for them and I think that is um, we've still got a, a pretty long way to go but the fact that the willingness is there is a good start so yeah I mean that's an interesting point because organizations love this idea of resilience and I think they often misinterpret it what it is it's n- not necessarily just being stronger it's about embracing your vulnerability as well mm. um, so where do you think people typically maybe either at a individual or organizational level where did where are those thinking traps where they they just don't get what it is um i think one of the, the places they don't get it is around burnout so we do a lot of work around burnout um and we get asked to come and train people individuals so that they are better equipped to keep burnout at bay but the reality is that Um, burnout is an individual response to systemic challenges and so you don't solve burnout by having a holiday or even taking a good break in the evening I mean you definitely we are we should all be accountable for trying to find our own solutions for getting away from work reducing the work load as much as we can and i if you're listening to this and you're now laughing out loud, don't laugh because <laughs> I actually understand how hard that is. But we do all have ways to reduce our workload, whether that is being more efficient over you know, your email use. So many people work with their email on all the time. It just, it just astounds me. So there are ways that we can um, be more effective at work. But the real burden is on organizations to identify the drivers of burnout and what they can do to reduce them. So, you know, some of which, for instance, are making their staff feel more valued for their contribution and making sure you recognize the specific contribution and role that individuals in your team play. And so I think there is a massive underappreciation of what leaders can do to help their teams be less likely to burn out. Hi, producer Phil here. Continuing my series of recommendations from the Evolving Leader Archive, this week I'm highlighting Season 3, Episode 9 with Philip Clark. In conversation with Scott and John, Philip explains that now more than ever we need to embrace a bolder, more ambitious model for leadership. He tells us that leaders need to think and behave like pioneers and goes on to talk us through his eight principles that he says set pioneer leaders apart. As always, I'll put a link to this episode in the show notes. Let's just turn back to to grief for a moment. Um, Particularly, I'm thinking about parents um, helping their children and parents who might be at a stage where um, they're under enormous pressure at work themselves. And so they're, they're dealing with the the 
hydra of having to deal with keeping things running, dealing with their own grief and then helping their children. What have you learned about that? Um, interesting, I feel, what I've learned about parenting over the years and um, particularly having lost Abby. I used to, uh, after she died, and so our boys were 14 and 16. Um, yeah, that's right. And they were, you know, the boys, 14 and 16-year-old boys, didn't really want to talk about their emotions that much. And so I would occasionally worry about it and think, well, you can't be bottling it up talking to no one about it, you know, and I'd say to them, if you want to talk to a school counsellor or if you want to, you know, I can arrange that. And they'd say to me, no, no, I don't want to, thanks, Mum. And one of the things I learned was that delay. I was always scared of delayed grief, that if you're not processing your grief, then it's going to come back and bite you. There's actually very little evidence of delayed grief. And so I now have much greater confidence to trust the process with them. And, you know, as long as they are communicating a bit, <laughs> they were teenage boys, remember, um, and that they, they're, I always would notice they're, um, they're functioning, you know, if they're functioning and they've generally got the show on the road and given they were dealing with their sister's death, then I think that was all good. I, I have moments with school and official kind of people in their lives where they would expect too much for them, I think, or not even really acknowledge how well they were doing, given what they'd gone through. Um, and so I was I was pretty careful ar around that, and I was pretty territorial around that. You know, I'd say, actually, lower the bar for our boys, because if they're at school and they're getting through it, then that's all I want for them, because um, I just... You know, I want them to be healthy and happy. So I think parents do worry way too much about their kids. Um, it's, it's, but I'm talking now in terrible generalisms, and I'm really wary of that because it it really does depend, doesn't it? We like saying that in psychology. It depends. Um, so, you know, don't mollycoddle your children. Don't be that lawnmower parent that makes the ground all smooth and perfect behind you because... They do need to struggle and suffer a bit. We learn so much from the negative emotions that come from suffering. Um, one of my boys is just struggling with something a bit at the moment, nothing particularly major. But I keep thinking you just have to let him work it out because if we try and ameliorate it, then we're not letting him find his own knowledge and build that resilience. It really is like a muscle. You You do need to practice so I feel like I'm ter walking, talking in terrible kind of waffly generalisms here but it's kind of hard to depict and summar summarize what I've learned about um, parenting but you know a lot of love security um, curiosity I'm really big on just being curious as to our boys paths and not trying to interfere or get in the way what what are you doing next, Lucy? What's your your, uh, your current research leading you towards? Um, so we do. I'm I'm really um running this program, coping with loss at the moment. Um, direct for the bereaved. We've always done use that train the trainer model where we train the health professionals, and we've done a lot of work in education over the last five years. So in New Zealand, every New Zealand school can get our whole school well-being uh, 
programs um, paid for by the Ministry of Education, funded by them. So that's really exciting. We've trained um, and licensed that material. Um, I was meant to be writing a book on general resilience and we've just said no to that actually because it's just too much. So that, that's a good example of me reducing my workload so that I can keep burnout at bay. But the thing that interests me most really is getting people to understand um, how they can be active participants in their grief process and watching our um, sort of group go through those programs and understanding, watching the difference that they can give the group to each other, that kind of group dynamic is really amazing. So I don't think there was enough hope and action offered to the bereaved and that's really what my mission is now. And I, I, Abby died eight years ago, so I'm kind of remote enough from that work that it doesn't doesn't feel too consuming now. And I'm continually buoyed up by the amount of correspondence I get from people saying, whether it was the book or the course or the TED talk, that they really have made a difference. So I think in terms of population, wellbeing and resilience promotion, we are um, on the right path. <laughs> There's a lot to do, isn't there? <laughs> you, you mentioned earlier on about what organisations were getting wrong in terms of resilience um, because they need to also be thinking not just about trying to impact individuals mindsets around resilience but also create the conditions for it to be possible in the first place um, can we talk about psychological safety and the importance of that yes so I think psychological safety is getting so much interest because it's pretty potent and when we look particularly now at the earliest studies coming or investigating the great resignation, it's pretty clear that the companies who have good company culture, aka psychological safety, is one of the big core elements of good company culture, they are retaining staff. Whereas organizations that have toxic culture are hemorrhaging staff. So that has really highlighted, certainly for the senior leaders that we work with, the importance of really building this psychological safety. So what we mean by that is creating an environment where you feel that you have a voice, that you are valued for who you are, you're not afraid to speak up or suggest something or request more information. So it feels like a safe workplace that you're not going to be ridiculed or kind of slapped down. So really important because we flourish in an environment of psychological safety. You know, when you feel like you're part of a team where you have a role and you, it's okay to have your voice heard and you are seen, then of course that makes it much um, easier to give that job your all. Um, and so, yeah, we're definitely seeing that leaders are starting to recognize the importance of building it, the importance of really validating their team members' contributions. 
Um, so rather than being that kind of heroic leader and pretending you know it all, actually turning to somebody in your team in a meeting and saying, hey, I, I actually, I'm a bit lost here. Have you got any ideas on that? Or have you had any thoughts on how we can go ahead from here? And so, yeah, it's been, um, it's really interesting looking at the early research coming out about the great resignation and toxic teams. And what we need to do is get people to really support each other. And, and we talk a lot about doing tiny noticeable things, you know, just saying thank you much more than you are already. A colleague of mine, um, Paula Davis, wrote this great book called Beating Burnout um, at Work. And it's about the, the potency of a team. You know, you can't change everything in your organization overnight. You can't make it all about the individuals, that it's everything is their responsibility. The biggest leverage we have is how we work as teams, how we support each other, how we look out for each other and validate each other. So there's so much we can do at that team level. I think when you talk about psychological safety in some organisations, they um, misinterpret it or some leaders misinterpret what it means in that their people aren't prepared to speak up. And in, in an environment where there is psychological safety, um, people still feel fear and anxiety about conflict, but they care about it so much and they have the means to do it that they care more about not saying it mm. than, than, than withholding it. So um, creating those conditions means a big shift in how the leader operates. Yeah, Absolutely. It really does. Um, and as I say, just being prepared as a leader to acknowledge that you don't have all of the answers um, and to be that bit vulnerable. And it is a real mind shift for some people. So, you know, the elements of culture mm -hmm. that matter most to employees are feeling respected, having supportive leaders, leaders that really actually live the company's core values rather than just, you know, um, shouting about them, but actually live them. And then that ethical behavior and a lack of toxic managers. I mean, it, it's, it's so clear, isn't it, that that's what we want. We want to feel respected. We want to feel heard. We want to be included. There's a reason that diversity, equity and inclusion are so important. They are the bedrock of resilience. And I think it's exciting that a lot of leaders are embracing this and really starting to realize. But it, it depends in, on the organization. And we do come across organizations who do just want to make it all the responsibility of the individual and individuals have got to be tougher and, and they've got to learn their learn how to be resilient and you know, put it all on the shoulders of, of individuals. And it's just not like that. You've got to be, we talk about resilience being, it's between us, you know, you, you can build your resilience mm. as an individual so much, but ultimately you've got to have the people around you have got to have your back. And there are moments for all of us. I mean, I, yeah, I'm a resilient person, but um, I've been on the phone and Zoom today and said to some of my colleagues, 
I've got too much going on. I can't do that this week. Can someone pick that up for me? And so then I'm willing to do that. My business partner's been um, in Ireland. She went there for 10 days back to her home and ended up staying for six weeks. She got COVID. It all kind of went wrong. And it's it's we, we can muddle through. And yeah, we had to reduce some of our workload and expectation. And yes, that's much harder when you're a public, you know, you've got you're you've got shareholders. But the reality is, I think we do need a, a real readjustment of what is important and putting humans really at the centre of it all is vital, isn't it? Well, that that sentiment that resilience is between us mm. rather than just within us, I think, is a great place to to end our our, our conversation. Um, Lucy, um, really, really enjoyed this, and I know our, our listeners will too. So, very grateful to you coming on to the Evolving Leader. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. And um, I, my last thing I want to say is to remember that everyone can be a leader. You know, you don't have to have a capital L on that leadership. And um, we can all do that by um, particularly supporting other people in their bid to be resilient. I think that's the most exciting thing. It's not just about what you can do for yourself. It's about what you can do for others. That's a great sentiment. Thank you. Thanks for joining us, folks. Until next time, remember, the world is evolving. Are you? Are you?